Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today is week three of Note, our series on the Old Testament book of Jonah, this satire story about a runaway prophet that, as we've discussed each week so far, is designed very intentionally to, through hyperbole and comedy, sneak past our defenses to get us laughing at poor, poor Jonah before revealing that its absurd characters and situations are actually what? Exaggerated versions of us, which I'm going to repeat every single week this entire series. You guys are gonna be so sick of hearing this little introduction, but that is because it is critical, it is critical to remember that Jonah, like all good satire, is meant to be a mirror. It's not just trying to convey facts for us to know. It's trying to reveal where we've become Jonah's in this world, where we've let the worst characteristics and attributes of humanity fester inside of us as the people of God, all for the purpose of, in reading this book, to allow God to get the Jonah out of us. And y'all, today, we're going to return to something I introduced way back in week one. I got a lot of flack for this, got a lot of feedback. That is what theologian, theologian Tim Mackey dubs, oh, the Veggie Tales phenomenon. For those who missed it, what this is, is this idea where most people get introduced to Bible stories as kids, primarily through children's media which, by necessity, since it's for children, boils them down, usually overemphasizing their exciting elements while simplifying their stories to teach basic moral lessons like be kind to people. And again, as I mentioned in week one, this is not inherently problematic, except for when we don't return to these stories again as adults. Because if we don't, what happens? They remain stories about fruits and vegetables for the rest of our days. That is, they remain stories that we think we know, even though, in fact, we have never actually heard their full message. Remaining tame and simplistic in our minds, rather than these stories that are meant to reveal complex truths about God, ourselves, our world, truths that we miss without even realizing. And y'all, I return here and I've dreaded this day. I return here because it's time. And y'all, I've got my socks on from the Georgia Aquarium. Got my fish socks on. And that's because we're going to discuss what is somehow the most famous element of this book, which is what? The freaking whale, guys. This is the epitome of the veggie tales phenomenon because one, this big fish, appears in just two sentences of a four-chapter book, and two, it's not even a whale, y'all. That's not even in the book. Oh, yet it's somehow what most people remember the most about this provocative, strange story in the Bible. Worse, it's actually become this weird distraction in the discourse around Jonah because, remember, as I mentioned in week one, it's debated whether Jonah is a literal history or this historical parable, an allegorical story with a figure from Israel's history, both of which 
appear in scripture, and neither of which undermine Jonah's purpose as this satirical mirror. And yet, despite that, in parts of the church, this whale has become this strange proxy for what I believe is a misguided debate. That is, where essentially, whether or not you believe Jonah literally survived inside of this big fish becomes a referendum on whether or not you believe in miracles. And let me be clear, that's ridiculous. That's a false dichotomy. I believe Jonah is a parable, and simultaneously, I believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from death miraculously. I hold both in the same hand. That's missing the point of this book. So let's put that aside today. Can we put that aside today? And let's instead focus on what the author of Jonah chooses to focus on. That is an entire chapter of text that resides between Jonah's two fish-related sentences. A chapter that's more thought-provoking, what I would posit, than Aquarian biology. Let's enter this text with open-mindedness because I believe deeply that buried beneath it, beneath these weird fish guts, is a beautiful message that God wants us to hear. Amen? Amen. But first, recall how we got here. The pure, faithful prophet Jonah, who is by far the worst person in pretty much all of human history, but specifically this story, gets called by God to deliver a message to who? Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Israel's arch enemies. But Jonah says, nope. Why? You've been listening, Lindsay. Because he hates the Ninevites, and he does not want them to receive God's grace. So instead of doing what God tells him to do, Jonah says, nope. And he flees by boat in the opposite direction. But alas, does Jonah get far No, because what happens? God sends this storm, trying to reach Jonah, to redirect him back to his mission, back to Nineveh, which doesn't work because everyone else on this boat full of pagans is more attuned to God than Jonah is. Thus, chapter one depicts Jonah's spiral downward into spiritual slumber, apathy, and death, leading him to rock bottom as he's thrown into the sea. However, as Jonah sinks into this watery grave, well... Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. So first, easy question. What should we presume happens to Jonah as this creature eats him? He dead, right? (laughs) End of Jonah, story over, bye-bye which would be a bummer, but it's not what happens because instead what we find is that Jonah resides in the fish's guts for three days and three nights. And I can already feel those questions tugging on us. How did he breathe? Was he digested? No, no, no. No, 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 no. Stop, stop. Missing the point. To get why, I want to act this scene out. And Phoenix Bolin, who interned with me this fall and helped me come up with this series, He is going to be our Jonah today, so round of applause for Phoenix. Come on closer, Phoenix. Right up to here. Phoenix, you're Jonah, which makes me God, right? Naturally. 
bro, I sent you to Nineveh, but you said no because you're a rebellious, hard-hearted person. Does that describe you accurately? Yes. Cool, nailed it, good. <laughs> but alas, look where that got you. Sinking into the sea where you're going to die. How do you feel about that? Escape from my ego because the blinds like the shun. Okay, we're done with you, Jonah. <laughs> but then suddenly, dun 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 dun. What is that? What is that? Oh my gosh! What is this? Is that a whale? It's a big fish, that's right, someone was paying attention. <laughs> Out of nowhere, this big sea creature comes about in Jonah, Phoenix, I've got bad news, you're going inside the big fish. Because it's going to swallow you all. <laughs> Okay, calm down, everybody. Calm down. This is all very normal. This happens every day. So, Phoenix Jonah, you're somehow alive inside of this creature's stomach, which, ew, ew, David. Do you have loads of space to move around? Yes. Okay, that's, I can, we all can tell that's not true, Jonah Phoenix. Still a rebellious prophet. It's cramped. It's tight. You can't really move an inch. Is it dry? Not the balloons, the, if this was a real fish. I just... Okay, so no. <laughs> right, you're in a fish's stomach, it's wet. It's probably sticky. And how's your light, lighting situation in there? How's the, how's the lighting sitch? Okay, not good. That's why I think that is not good. It's pitch black because it's a fish's stomach, right? You guys track with me? So, Jonah Phoenix. You're confined in this wet, dark, horrible place in Jonah Phoenix. What would you be doing in this moment? Would you be trying to get out? No, it's You're very comfy. <laughs> A rebellious prophet, y'all. I'd be trying to escape. I'll just speak for myself. Would y'all be trying to escape? Yes. yes. Well, Jonah Phoenix, let me ask you. Would you be writing complex Hebrew poetry describing as an exact historical record your time in this fish that you intend to pass down to all future generations upon your inevitable escape? Probably not. Probably not. But that's odd because that's what Jonah does. In fact, all of chapter two is Jonah in this big fish writing dense, and I mean dense, beautiful Hebrew poetry as a prayer to God. Why aren't you doing that, Jonah Phoenix? Because it's impossible and you don't know Hebrew. Okay, that's enough. Everyone, round of applause for Phoenix. He's a good sport. I also want to shout out Dan Bellamy. He is, he made this creature. He is inside of this creature right now. And if you do not know, Dan Bellamy has a, a performance business called Inflatable Stories, where he reenacts Bible stories for children and churches. And it is absolutely awesome. So I highly, highly recommend that you go check that out on social media. That's Inflatable Stories. Give him a shout, give him a like, and once again, give him a round of applause.
And like I said, we do that every week here at M3 Church. <laughs> anyway, anyway, here's the point of all that madness. This is a moment where we must meet Jonah on its own terms, not on how we want to read it. First, we must remember that it is satire, which this scene clearly reflects, if you think about it. It's absurd, unrealistic, and dare I say, even comical, right? Did you guys laugh watching it? Yes. It's pretty funny. And second, we must remember that Jonah is part of this larger Old Testament collection of books called the Books of the Prophets. And that's really important because what the author is doing here is he's pulling from a motif that is common to these books. Who remembers what the prophetic books are largely comprised of? Poetry, right? You get a brief little narrative about who the specific prophet is and then the rest of the book is these poetic sermons containing the content of God's message spoken through that specific prophet, which we haven't seen any of yet in the book of Jonah. Why is that? Because he refused to do his job. <laughs> we have not gotten any poetic sermons because Jonah has not thought it wise to go and do what God's told him to do, deliver his message, right? However, if you do go read these other prophetic books, you're going to find that their poetry often builds upon each other and references each other pretty deeply. They use shared themes, symbols, and metaphors. And in them, there's this repeated metaphor that gets used to depict the consequences of Israel rebelling against God. That is, the image of Israel being swallowed whole by, who wants to guess? A giant sea creature. One example, the prophet Jeremiah poetically describes Babylon taking Israel into exile like this. Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, has eaten us alive. He's drained us of strength. He's left us for dead. He's gobbled or swallowed us up like what? A great sea monster, and he spit or vomited us out. And this exact metaphor appears repeatedly when the prophets poetically describe the disastrous consequence of God's people forsaking their calling, it is over and over and over again described as this great sea beast swallowing them up and spitting them out. And now, Jonah's author tells us this story about one rebellious prophet who flees from God's calling, which leads him downward into the sea, culminating with this metaphor becoming literalized and applied directly to his life. He's the stand-in for God's people and their story of failure, exile, and redemption. Y'all, that's literary genius. Because I want you to imagine this. Imagine you're an Israelite raised on these scriptures. What are you thinking in this moment? Jonah's story of failure, descent, rock bottom, and exile. That's our story. Which means that the questions that you're meant to be asking here, is Jonah doomed? Does God still love him? Has God abandoned him to this fate? Become questions that you're meant to apply to who? Yourself. When I, as a member of God's people, experience disaster, am I doomed? Does God still love me when I'm in the belly of the big fish? 
has God abandoned me to my fate? Y'all, suddenly, Jonah becomes that mirror that we keep talking about week after week. Because remember, like we said last week, Jonah's just this religious dude who tried living by his will alone, leading him to this dark, cramped, horrible space, which I imagine is not the freedom he was hoping for when he got on a boat and fled to the ends of the earth. And this is so interesting because as he's in this space, this is the first and the only time that the author of Jonah depicts Jonah's internal world. It's the only time in the book that we're brought into how he is processing through his predicament. The comedy ceases and gives way to somber self-reflection. And I think that's brilliant because I think what the author of Jonah is trying to do is he's inviting us to find ourselves within Jonah in this moment where he is forced to process his own rock bottom when he's forced to process how right when he should have suffered the consequences of his rebellion, God somehow transformed what should have been the vehicle of his self-inflicted demise into this paradoxical upside-down vehicle of God's grace, raising Jonah not to death but back to life. Simply put, y'all, whether you think it's a history or a parable, the author wants us to focus not on the fish but rather on what happens when we experience a crisis that forces us to reassess our entire lives and purpose on this good world, past, present, and future, which obviously is not relatable to any of us, right? No. Y'all, we all go through this eventually. We all go through a descent into the bottom, into the fish's belly, We have to reflect on how did we get here? What does this mean about God? What does this mean about me? So if you've ever been there before, or heck, if you're there right now, hear me when I say that you're not alone. You're part of a long history of humans who've tried building their own kingdoms in their lives, only to discover that they make for terrible, terrible kings. And this chapter wants to offer us hope, showing us this profound image of what processing through such experiences can look like in God's story. So with that in mind, verse one, we read, for inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. So what's Jonah do first? He cries out to God, right? In recovery, we call this an admission of powerlessness. It's usually brought about by a major suffering, death, illness, divorce, imprisonment, mental health crisis, career failure, relational collapse, where despite using every trick in our bag of manipulation to control the situation, guess what we discover? We cannot control this at all where our resources just fundamentally fail us and we are forced to accept reality as it is, not as we wished it were. Anyone been there before? Always leads to a statement, I'm powerless over blank. This addiction, behavior, person, event, circumstance, etc. So in powerlessness, Jonah finally, for the first time in the book, I might add, he finally prays. The prophet of God finally remembers, oh yeah, I should pray to God, right? 
Anyway, and he throws himself onto God, asking God to do what he can't do for himself, which is what? (sighs) Save me, right? Save me. And notice this, in processing his experience, what we see in this text is that Jonah comes to believe that despite everything, has God abandoned him? Does Jonah think God isn't listening? No. Jonah very much believes that despite being in the belly of a fish, at the bottom of the ocean, that God is still with him, present and active even here. Because that's just who God is in the Bible that he's read. This God who leaves the 99 to rescue the one runaway. Jonah remembers who his God is and he trusts that he is still with him. Jonah continues, verse three, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your what? Your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Gross. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prey rose to you, to your what? Holy temple. So what's Jonah do next? Well, he retells his story with pretty searing self-honesty, right? I lived by my will under the direction of my ego and look where it got me. Death, right? Into the pit, into the abyss, which forces Jonah to accept that any future, any hope that he has for a future better than just chilling in this creature's belly, is it gonna come from his will? No, it fundamentally cannot come from his power because look where his power got him, right? He realizes in this moment, he comes to believe that if he has hope for anything but death, he's going to have to rest it upon a power greater than himself, forcing him to place his hope where it's always belonged. It says Jonah looks to God's temple, the symbol of God's presence with his people, where anyone could go no matter what they've done and find reconciliation with God. And in looking at that symbol, Jonah remembers that the God of Israel's story doesn't abandon his people. The God of Israel's story is faithful. He won't let evil get the last word on his world. He is a God who resurrects life from even the most dead, broken things. Jonah remembers what story he lives in, what God he worships, whose temple he's called to look upon in times of crisis. And that shifts his focus, right? What we see here is that Jonah shifts his focus from self-pity over his uncontrollable circumstances to the solid presence, character, and grace of God, which reframes everything. Because suddenly, Jonah's rock bottom stops being a reason to despair because he remembers that in God's story, by God's power, he can trust that even it might be redeemed. And in humble dependence, Jonah finally puts his hope and trust in the only thing in this entire universe that has never failed him, even though he has been faithless to it over and over and over and over again, which is the good, gracious, present God of his story. He says, I'm a terrible captain of my ship. In fact, I just got myself shipwrecked. God, you direct my life, my will, everything. It's all yours. You tell me where to go. That leads him to this realization, verse eight. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you 
What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And this kind of feels tangential at first. It feels like a tangent, right? But it really isn't. Because let me ask you, didn't Jonah's desire to be the God of his life lead him to this dark, confined space of death? Was it not his desire for control and independence rather than humble reliance that got him here? See, what I think Jonah is doing here is he's just naming the idols in his life. After looking back on this story and finding God's presence, he's just naming those idols of control, pride, and selfishness that led him to lose sight of the only power in his life that was actually trustworthy, which was Yahweh, the God of Israel, his God. And in that recognition, he just starts expressing gratitude, literally, again, for the first time in this story, because Jonah's the worst, but he starts expressing gratitude for all that God's given him, which, y'all, is everything. We even see that Jonah expresses gratitude for even the fish, because by God's grace, even it became the strange path that he needed to undergo to learn the most important lesson of this life, which is that his life wasn't about him. The purpose of his life was always to let God work through him, to do good in this world. And at last, chapter two closes with some comedy. Verse 10, and with that, the Lord commanded the fish and it did what? It vomited Jonah out (laughs) onto dry land. So Jonah's vomited out of the fish, finally headed for where? For Nineveh. Nineveh, Lindsay. For Nineveh. He's finally back on mission, right? And as we close, and I'm going to do this every week, I want us to explore this section as our mirror because I think there's some powerful stuff going on here. And as I I thought about this section of text, I found myself, I just kept coming back to the idea that this section is really just about that central question. What do we do when we find ourselves in the fish's belly in this life? Due to our choices, our circumstances, or more often than not, a little bit of both, right? And I think Jonah answers that with a pretty provocative idea, which is this idea that through God's grace, even Jonah's descent into rock bottom can become a form of grace in Jonah's world. And that's an alien perspective, I think, for most of us, right? I think for most of us, when our paths lead us to disaster, we either, one, collapse into self-pity. Who's ever done that? Obsessing over the unchangeable paths with all these what-ifs and should-bes while shame just eats us alive. Or we go the other direction and we just double down on our will, living in denial. What fish? This is Cancun. This is great. I'm crushing this whole prophet thing. Oh, look, it's raining. That's nice. And we've been there before. Just put blinders on and just refuse to take responsibility or to acknowledge where we're at. (laughs) And I think what chapter two of Jonah implores us to consider is that neither response contains any hope for redeeming such experiences. And that's because neither response produces any real change in us. We're just paralyzed by self-loathing on one hand or blinded by self-righteous arrogance on the other. And we do not change. Thus, what I think this chapter is trying to do is it's trying to model for us a different, more profound response to such circumstances. And I think it's actually pretty simple when you boil it down. I think first... It wants us to just understand that the first step is that we admit with self-honesty what got us here, what got us to this fish's belly, and accept what that admission reveals, which is that we are fundamentally 
powerless over blank. No denial. We just name the suffering, the failures, the uncontrollable events that got us here. Yep, that happened. Now I'm here. I'm powerless. Step two. Then, in acceptance, rather than falling into self-loathing, I want you to think about this. Rather than falling into self-loathing, we instead change our focus from ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, from our unchangeable circumstances to God's character, presence, and grace in our unchangeable circumstances. Like Jonah, this is what I think is important. Like Jonah, we let God's story become our story. And suddenly our journeys downward aren't just our shame. They can become vehicles of redemptive grace in our lives. Because when we stop playing God and embrace grace, we can look upon our failures. We can look upon the brokenness that we've perpetuated. We can look upon the breaking that we have brought into this world without judgment. We can allow ourselves to stare into them and through God's grace, just let them reveal the idols that we have let fester in our lives. Selfishness, judgmentalism, hate, violence, greed, self-centeredness, self-pity, you name it. We can just start naming those things. And here's what's important because what that does is something profound. It frees us to in hope and trust surrender them. Letting God strip them away, not us. Which I know sounds odd and probably counterintuitive. You're probably like, shouldn't we just fix ourselves? Shouldn't we fix the problems that we made? No, no, no. If you could get out of the belly of the whale by your own power, wouldn't you have done that already? No, no, if we try to fix the problems created by a current way of thinking without changing our thinking, we are just gonna create better hidden problems, y'all. That is a fact. Like Jonah, we must be transformed by a power outside of and greater than ourselves, which sounds ethereal, but I'm telling you, it's actually quite concrete in practice. For me, when I found myself at rock bottom, it meant humbling doing what my old way of thinking feared the most, getting counseling, submitting to my sponsor's direction, allowing God to transform me through things outside of my own sick, twisted mind. That's humble dependence. God, do for me what I haven't been able to do for myself. Save me, get me sober, restore me to sanity. I can't fix me, but you can. So I surrender to your wisdom transmitted through others who have walked this road before. I can't change my past, but I know that you are present and that you can redeem me to a better future. So I submit to your direction, even if it means doing what terrified who I am now, like waking up at 5 a.m. to meditate to God so I can get my mind right before going into the insanity of this world. Y'all, through that, I have watched God redeem my descent into this pathway to a life that is actually life. And that's the good news, am I right? God redeems Jonah's rebellion into a pathway back to his calling, which doesn't excuse Jonah's horrible behavior. It just lets him accept what he cannot change, his past, and surrender his present and his future to a God who might be able to redeem an ounce of good from it. And y'all, if you have ever been at the vicious belly, my goodness, that is good news. That is good news. And then finally, I think this is a critical step that we so often fail to talk about in the church. Finally, we then move forward remembering that the spiritual life is about progress, not perfection. And I say that because, and I hate to deflate the balloon a little bit. I say that because 
want you to notice a few things. First of all, notice that Jonah never says sorry in this apology tour. Then he throws shade at idol worshipers, even though they are the ones who offered sacrifices to God in the last chapter, but not him. And in fact, Jonah never actually sacrifices to God in the story after promising to do so. And next week, what we're going to see is that Jonah's made progress. He does finally go to Nineveh, but he's not a totally changed dude because his old idols creep right back in the moment he escapes from the fish's stomach, forcing him to learn the same lessons all over again in the next two chapters. And the comedy is going to fully reenter at that point, <laughs> which is a bummer on one hand. Y'all, we're never going to see Jonah get it in this book. I hate to spoil that for you. But I think on the other hand, it's also a really important reminder. Because yes, Jonah in this mountaintop experience must accept life on life's terms. He must humbly recognize his dependence on God. And yet, Jonah is also forgetful. And his spiritual journey includes step backs and detours and all sorts of missed chances to go the right way. And in that, Jonah's just like us. If you think he's not, then you're Jonah. <laughs> Jonah's just like us. Because discipleship isn't about mountaintop experiences, perfecting us overnight. In fact, we're never going to be perfected in this life. No, it's about a long walk in one direction, which is towards Jesus Christ. One defined by progress, not perfection, where at times we misstep and we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. Who's been there before? Am I the only one? But when we fail, guess what we do? We make God's story our story. Remembering who God is, embracing grace, learning from this new fish gut experience too. Allowing it to reorient us back towards who we were created to be and then dusting ourselves off and starting out for our Nineveh all over again. Back towards who and where and what God wants us to be and to do in this world. Knowing that no matter what, God is with us, he loves us, and he can redeem this too. And we just admit that we are terrible captains of this boat and say, you direct my life. Amen? Amen. Amen.